Hello and welcome to You're On Mute, the On Mute Series 2, a multi-award nominated podcast brought to you by BBI. I'm your host, Lord Michael Hastings, and sharing some good news, I'm pleased to announce we now have a charity, the Black British Initiative. Over the next 25 weeks, myself and Eunice Olumidi and my fellow presenters will be interviewing an incredible lineup of leaders, icons, and change makers. Lifting the mute button, we learn about their life's journey, how they got their big break, and ascertain how they balance the importance of commercial performance versus societal impact. Now, the killing of George Floyd, Chris Caber, and similar instances has highlighted how racial disparity has disproportionately affected the globe's black communities. One of the greatest challenges facing black entrepreneurs is a lack of access to funding capital, limited aspirations, stunting growth, slowing innovation, and preventing the deep reservoirs of black entrepreneurial talent from being realized, counterproductive, of course, for society at large. And as we all know, with great power comes huge responsibility. So this series looks at how those in positions of influence can use their status as a force for good, helping to level the playing field to enable a full contribution from every sector of society. Our time together is broken into three sections, each one punctuated by the guests' favorite piece of music, signaling different stages of their life. And today, we're joined by Tom Athron, CEO of Fortnum & Masons, the department store of distinction established since 1707, famously headquartered in Piccadilly, London, with a reputation for supplying the highest quality provisions, including exotic and speciality food. So we're discussing the art of reinvention, how to keep a heritage brand relevant in a digital age. Welcome to your on mute, Tom. Welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. So being the CEO of, of one of the most coveted brands in the world and department stores globally, it's an astonishing achievement. We're really keen to learn about the man at the helm of it all, the genesis of your life. So lifting the mute button, tell us about mum, dad and the family. So taking it right back to the beginning, my, my dad was um, in the army. So um, I was the son of a soldier and that meant that we lived... Um, uh, in well actually they lived during uh, the uh, during my dad's career in some quite extraordinary places actually they were in Hong Kong they were in Belize um, they were in Cyprus my dad started his um, his uh, army career or certainly his married army career in Cyprus um, it was uh, I was born in Germany I didn't get to go to the luxury um, sort of you know whizzy places I went to Germany uh, I was born in Germany um, and moved around uh, within Germany for quite a long period of time before eventually coming back to the UK. In those days, um, uh, the job of an army wife actually was almost as, um, uh, as involved as, um, as, as the job of a soldier. Uh, my mum had a job looking after the wives of the men that my dad um, led um, in the same way that my dad was responsible for um, the lives of the men that he led directly. Um, so I ended up with um, effectively two working parents, although my mum would say she, would never, she was never paid for that work. Um, it, was, uh, it was just part of what she did. But um, uh, so very much brought up sort of within an, army, uh, within an army life. We moved back to the UK when I was quite young, probably five or six, and we settled in uh, a place called Mersey Island, which is in Essex, um, on the Essex marshes. Um, it's absolutely beautiful. It's an island that's sort of just off the coast, about two or 300 meters off the coast of Essex. You travel across a road that goes across the mud um, to get there. That road is covered twice a day by the high tide. Um, 
which meant that the community on that island was really quite special. Um, and it also meant that from quite a young age, I was given lots of freedom to explore, actually. Um, I was quite high spirited. I needed quite a lot of discipline. Um, I, need my, I needed my energies, challenge, uh, uh, my energies channeling, that's for sure. Um, but it was a wonderful place to grow up. But it was, I mean, if you're thinking Caribbean islands, this was um, an island uh, um, surrounded by mudflats. Uh, it was, it's the opposite. So lovely to play in. And, uh, and mum, the washing machine going all the time. Yeah, it was, it was fantastic. I have two older sisters. They're um, seven or eight years older than me. Um, so uh, we, we had a, you know, it was a busy house. Um, we had lots of visitors, uh, lots of people staying. Uh, and my dad traveled around the country, actually, in his job as a soldier. He'd go to Colchester, which is where the base was, big army base in Colchester, has been for years. But he'd also travel to Wiltshire. He was a, he was a gunner officer. So he was in the Royal Artillery firing um, firing guns across the plains, basically. Um, and, um, uh, but it was brilliant, actually, to be able to settle in Mersey as a place. Actually, my mum's family was from Mersey. Um, she was brought up on Mersey Island. Um, and they were all very keen sailors. My parents met sailing, actually. Um, and that love of sailing has sort of translated down into me and both my sisters as well. How wonderful. So was your schooling close by or did you go somewhere else for schooling? Yeah, well, a, a bit of both, really. I went to the village school um, for, uh, for for many years. Um, so there is a there's a, 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 a school on the island. There's a church on the island where my parents were married. Um, uh, most of it's farmland and actually still is farmland these days. Um, and uh, but as I sort of began to get older, I um, uh, my school changed. So about the age of 10, I think I was about 10. I was sent to um, a school called the Duke of York's Royal Military School, mm. um, which is down in Kent. It's the, on the cliffs uh, above Dover. It's it's um, it's a pretty bleak position, actually. I mean, in February, the wind just whistles over the top of those cliffs. Um, so it was uh, it was it was, you know, it toughened me up, I would say. Um, but it was a great place to be. It's now it's the most fantastic school. It was for sons of soldiers. It's now actually a um, a co-educational state boarding academy mm, mm. Um, and uh, is the most phenomenal school and actually so not only is it for boys and girls um, whereas in those days it was just for boys um, but it's also uh, for the sons of um, uh, or sorry for uh, children of um, all three services so the Royal Air Force the Navy as well as the Army and it's a sort of I guess it's a school with military traditions so it wasn't training you to be in the Army by any stretch um, but we did march to breakfast in the morning. We did have sort of kit inspections on the end of our bed um, pretty much every morning. It was cross-country runs and cold showers at the weekends. It was, um, uh, if it wasn't designed to send you into the army, I think for many people, it probably put them off actually. Um, but I really enjoyed it. I mean, I, it, it gave me a lot of structure in, in a, at a time when I think I probably needed it actually. Um, as I said, I was quite high spirited and I think the discipline it gave me really allowed me to, channel my energies. It wasn't particularly academic, but it did have a very strong work ethic. And I would say that the opportunities that that school gave me um, were astonishing, actually. And I have to say, I am eternally grateful uh, to the Duke of York's Royal Military School for everything it gave me. I, I thoroughly enjoyed my time there. And maybe you may not want to answer this question, but would you send your children there? Um, I haven't because I wanted them sort of closer by, actually. I live down in Sussex, that's down in Kent, so it's a good hour and a half away. But I, it was definitely on the list, yes. Yeah, and obviously you had an education that's given you phenomenal structure 
means you can lead a business so brilliantly. I, I think that the, it, that's definitely where it started. Um, you know, the and, and don't forget, this isn't a this isn't a fee paying school. I mean, there were fees, but actually they were very, very low. This is a state funded um, boarding mm. academy. And in those days, it was actually run by um, uh, by the Royal Army Education Corps. So we had a lieutenant colonel as our headmaster. We had a lot of uh, teachers from the Royal, Edu uh, Royal Army Education Corps um, and others um, sort of milling around alongside um, civilian teachers as well. Um, many of whom were in um, the, the Territorial Army and all those sorts of things. So there was just this sort of, there was just this push towards doing things in a very organized way. And I have to say the army are incredibly well organized um, if they're anything. And, um, and for me, it was exactly what, uh, what I needed. So when I was there, there were 450 boys um, uh, spread across um, eight boarding houses. And boarding in those days was, um, it was full boarding. So I went at the beginning of term. I came back at half term, which was six weeks later. No exeats. Um, uh, half term was in, in, the, in the Christmas term, it was a week. But in the summer and Lent term, it was just a weekend. And then back at school for another six weeks. So I was... I properly left home at that age. And I think it just gave me a real, um, uh, I guess, a real sense of independence as much as anything else. And I was 10 years old. I and mean, I look at my children, who are slightly older than 10 now, but I look at them when they were 10. And I was thinking, I remember thinking, goodness, that is very young to be going away for such a long, for, for such a long time. Um, but uh, uh, I, I guess I learned how to fend for myself. I made great friends there, and I'm still friends with a lot of people from school. Um, and uh, yeah, it, as I said, I think I'm just hugely grateful for the opportunities it gave me. And you also decided then when you were to university to go way, away, away, way away from home, up north, and went travelling beforehand. I did. I think that, so the, the, any fear I might have had of being away from home sort of evaporated quite early on in my life. Um, uh, you know, I realized that I could just get on with things. And so I did go traveling in my gap year. I went traveling around the States, actually. I got a, I got a train ticket that lasted me for months. Um, and I went and traveled around. Uh, I literally did a big circle. I mean, I started up in New York City, went all the way down into all sort of Florida and Orlando and Miami, New Orleans, uh, and then across um, the middle of the States uh, and all those wonderful deserts uh, to uh, LA and San Francisco, and then back across to Chicago. I mean, I, I just met so many extraordinary people. It was a brilliant time. I went with a friend um, and uh, um, who was a girl, actually. Um, we weren't a boyfriend and girlfriend, but we were great mates. I remember her dad saying to me, please look after Caroline. You know, I'm very worried about her girl traveling across America on our own. Um, but we had a brilliant time. I, I tell you what, it was there's something about arriving in train stations in cities as your first impression, which is very, very different to perhaps the experience you might have now of, of, of arriving, well, frankly, anywhere in the world, actually, in an airport. I mean, it is very different. Um, you know, you can tell a lot from a city. Uh, in those days, Grand Central Station in New York was pretty grimy, I would say. Um, I think uh, Los Angeles and New Orleans were very different to the Los Angeles and New Orleans that perhaps are portrayed um, on uh, on the small or big screen, um, you know, downtown Los Angeles, downtown New Orleans are very different to the movies, the opposite of, you know, Venice Beach or the French Quarter. And I have to say, I had a vivid memory at that age of feeling, particularly in those two places, actually, of feeling very, um, very out of place is the way I described it. And actually, it was interesting because before I met, uh, before I joined Fortnum's, I was reading some of the reviews, customer reviews, um, reviews from 
employees who'd worked here. And one of the things that someone had said on Glassdoor, actually online, was how they felt out of place. And that phrase took me right back to being in a train station in, in LA or, or a train station in New Orleans and thinking, I just didn't belong here. And it really made me think about how I wanted Fortnum's to be, I guess, a place for anyone as much as anything else. And I, and I've, um, and I don't just mean employees, I mean, customers, anyone, everyone. And, um, and it really does, that really did stick with me, actually. And I have to say, I think a lot about how we can open up Fortnum's in particular nowadays to be much more sort of inclusive and welcoming and creative and open. Um, and uh, are not sort of stuffy and exclusive. Uh, and um, and I think that my sense of that really began when I was traveling around in my gap year. And did you come to love America? I came to love America. I've been back many times. Uh, and I've got friends who live there now. Um, and uh, yes, I think it's a, it's a wonderful place. Um, it's not a place I'd want to live. I think I much prefer living in the UK. Um, <laughs> but, um, uh, but I do love visiting, yeah. And when you went to, you were doing business management at Newcastle University, yeah. and you got to see the reality of what was happening with the mining cultures of the time. Yes. And what, what impact did that have on you when all that change was taking place? Yeah, it's, um, I guess, look, that was the first city I'd ever lived in, actually. Mm. Um, uh, I hadn't been brought up in a, um, in a sort of metropolitan or an urban environment. Mine was a, it was, as I've mentioned, it was sort of coastal. Um, and so, uh, and what I saw was a, I guess what I saw was a city in transition. You know, it was basically shifting from a, a city, and not just the city, I mean, the whole area, um, uh, you know, stretching from Newcastle down through Gateshead and then into Middlesbrough and Sunderland. I mean, basically that whole of the Northeast, that sort of big conurbation was, a, was, a, was a, a, an area of the UK that was transitioning from shipbuilding and coal mining and fundamentally, you know, big, heavy industry manufacturing into something that was um, um, that was that was sort of more modern. Um, it was it was undergoing a sort of a, I guess, a period of investment. Um, you know, the big investment or the, the, the big thing that had opened just before I joined was the Metro Center in Gateshead, which was a huge shopping center opened by Sir John Hall, who's a very big sort of Northeast industrialist. Um, uh, ended up as chairman of, uh, uh, of Newcastle United, I seem to remember. And of course, the money that was going into the Quayside as well at New, in, um, in, New, uh, in Newcastle. It, it felt like it was a city in, uh, in transition. But, but I guess what I saw for the first time was, um, uh, was what urban living could really be like, actually. And, and, I, um, and the sort of, you know, that divide between the haves and have nots. I'd never really been exposed to that if I'd been, if I'm completely honest. My upbringing from that respect um, was actually very sheltered. And I found that, um, I found that quite a big deal actually. And I didn't become politically active, but I did become much more politically aware. I think that's probably the way I'd describe it. Um, and, uh, and I guess to sort of there were some seeds sown in me at that point around um, I don't know, this sort of bias towards social justice, which and when I went to the John Lewis partnership later in my career, were really allowed to sort of foster and grow. Um, but I do love Newcastle and I had a brilliant time there. And again, it was also a place where I made some, some of the most fantastic friends, lifelong friends who I see a lot of today. My, my, the godchildren of my, the godparents of my children are all my friends from Newcastle. Mm. Um, in fact, my wife was at Newcastle at the same time as me, but we never met. <laughs> um, so we have a lot of common in that perspective, uh, in, in that perspective. And the interesting thing is that I do go back to this day. Uh, Fortnum's tea uh, blending business uh, or tea blending supplier is in 
um, Newcastle, business called Rington's. All mm. our tea is sailed in from all the way around the world, sails up the Tyne and is blended in, um, uh, in Biker. So uh, I get to go back and I really enjoy going back. Now, that's a beautiful story. I think very few people would know that. And it says an awful lot about Portland's and, and about you too. But let's just go to the track of music that you chose as your first for this podcast, which was the Smiths Big Mouth Strikes Again. Now, what, what, what did that mean to you? I think it's a school thing. You know, um, it, it, that's obviously where I first came across the Smiths. I was at school. I was away at school um, in the 80s, pretty much for the whole of the 80s. And um, uh, I wasn't particularly in the cool crowd, but the Smiths was a sound that was very different to um, anything else that I'd heard up until that point. Um, I was trying to teach myself the guitar. I was obsessed with Johnny Marr, who, of course, was the lead guitarist um, with the Smiths, who just had a sound which was fundamentally different to anything I'd ever heard before. I really enjoyed that. But the reason I've chosen it is actually because my son, Benny, who is now uh, 18, has also himself, and I can tell you, without any interaction from me, discovered the Smiths. And so when we're in the car, I find myself sitting with him, listening to the Smiths, in particular this track, um, which actually was one of the Smiths songs I can play. It's actually quite easy in comparison to the rest of them. Um, I think it's A minor, C, D, A minor, F, G, I think. And, um, uh, and I, it's just one of life's great pleasures, sitting in a car with your son, listening to music that you listened to back way, uh, way back when, and he's, he's as, as interested in it today as you were then. Uh, is something that um, is something that just makes me smile. So that's the reason I've picked it. That's very beautiful. It's very beautiful. Now you chose to go into merchant banking. That's a that's a big shift away from the military background you'd had. I did. I mean, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, if I'm completely honest. And um, there was a milk round going on actually when I left university, which is at the beginning of the '90s. Um, the country was in recession. Um, there weren't actually many jobs around. Uh, I applied for lots and lots and lots of different things. Um, uh, and I would say that this is the only job I got offered. It's probably the way I describe it. Um, but I joined uh, an old English merchant bank called Hambro's, which only now exists in name. It's actually owned by the French these days. The best advice that I was given when I was looking for a job as I was leaving university is that it almost doesn't matter what you do, but do make sure that you use your time constructively. And I thought that was really good advice. And actually, the skills that I learned when I, through my training at Hambro's, I still use to this day. So the concept of time value of money, um, a, a, you know, a particular approach to investment appraisal, I enjoy nothing more than sitting with Justin, who's our wonderful finance director, and um, tossing ideas around with him about whether or not we should do things. And I still use the skills that I taught that I was learnt, uh, that I was taught at um, at Hambro's to this day. And I, whilst I sort of knew quite early on that I that it wasn't going to be for me, um, uh, I, I am um, I'm enormously grateful for the time that I spent there actually. And it was a uh, it was a good thing to do. The, the interesting thing about that advice, by the way, about doesn't matter what you do right at the beginning of your career but use your time constructively is that the notion of what a constructive first career is has changed dramatically so you know the in those days um you know uh, uh, i was encouraged to go into accountancy or law um, or shipping or banking or you know the sort of professions or a doctor or a you know whatever it might be and um and these days um I'm much more interested in people who've spent time being an entrepreneur or have spent time working in a charity 
or um, have spent time doing something uh, uh, under the banner of sustainability. And I think that that is a big shift from where we were um, 20 or 30 years ago when I, when I joined uh, the workforce. Um, and yes, you know, you, you get fantastic training in investment banks today uh, in the same way that you would at consulting firms or accountancy firms or lawyers. Um, but there's something very compelling about people who choose a different path in their career. And, mm -hmm. uh, um, uh, and I just think it's worth people remembering that, actually, as they're thinking about what they want to do next, certainly as they get to their, uh, the end of their education. Well, maybe your, so your second song helps to illustrate that. This is Louis Armstrong's We Have All the Time in the World. Why was that important to you? Well, my wife and I, bizarrely, are quite big Bond fans. And you'll know that that was um, one of the title tracks to On Her Majesty's Secret Service, mm. the Lazenby Bond. Um, mm. There's a very emotional bit at the end where Bond marries um, uh, Tracy, Vincen Tracy Vincenzo, who's played by Diana Rigg, and they're driving away from the wedding and um, they get overtaken by... I'm guessing they're from Smirsh or someone anyway, and they get shot at and Tracy, get, Tracy Vincenzo gets hit and killed. And there's a very um, sort of rather poignant sort of emotional moment in that film where um, he's asked by the policeman if you know, he's okay. And he turns to the policeman and says, it's okay, we've got all the time in the world. And then that music starts. And it was the first dance at our wedding, largely as a result of that. It's just a beautiful song, but um, uh, I guess it's the thing that it's the one song that, I think in the first instance brought my wife Nix and I together um, uh, was this sort of was this shared love of Bond more broadly. Mm. So one of the places you chose to spend a lot of time with your wife was in South Africa and that was a, another big shift. It was I sort of I got to the end of my Hambrose career I was there for sort of three or four years and I thought this just isn't for me I'm not sure what it is I want to go and do I need some time to think about um, where I go. This is an important moment in my life. I was sort of getting to the end of my 20s. I wanted to make a really sensible decision. Um, but I, and, and so I thought about going to do an MBA. And uh, so going back to university and doing a, a master's degree, partly because I was interested in learning, partly because I wanted to go and experience somewhere new, and partly because it was just a, it was a good way to spend a year and giving myself some space and time to think about what it was that I wanted to go and do. I actually went sailing before that. I went, I, I wrote... Um, I wrote to the guy, there's a, there's a guy called Jimmy, who runs a big um, sailing event where people sail their yachts from one side of the Atlantic to the other. And um, I'd read about him in a magazine. So I wrote to him and I said, can you send me a list, the names and addresses of all the people who are taking part in this, um, this sailing trip across the Atlantic in November? This was in November 97, I guess. Um, and I'm going to write to them all and, uh, and see if I can persuade them to take me on their trip. And I guess this was in the days before GDPR, because he very happily sent me the list of all these name, names and addresses <laughs> from all these people. And um, so I wrote to them all and said, look, I can sail a bit and I'm interested in coming to do this trip. And one of them wrote back and said, well, I've got a space. There is only three of us. We could do with another hand. Um, so I went and did that and we sailed across the Atlantic um, to the Caribbean. Um, it took about three weeks. Uh, and it was a fantastic adventure. And it was just a brilliant thing to do before I went off to South Africa. But we ended up in South Africa, which was, I, I guess I would describe it. I was in Cape Town um, mm. uh, at the University of Cape Town. Um, and uh, I, I chose it because, well, first of all, it's a, it's a great school. It's a wonderful city, beautiful city. Um, and, and it was also extremely good value. I mean, it, I felt like I was going to be able to do an MBA without shouldering lots and lots of debt 
that would then force me into a job at the end of it that I didn't necessarily want. I wanted the freedom to go and do something that I really wanted to, you know, find, I guess. I wanted to give myself that flexibility. And so South Africa represented the best opportunity. I would say arriving in Cape Town, it was, um, I would describe it as sort of both exciting and shocking, actually. Um, and again, really building on what I saw sort of in Newcastle, but taking it to a completely different level. Um, South Africa was exciting because, again, it was, it was sort of a country in transition. It was in the middle of um, uh, sort of Mandela's reign as president. They'd just won the Rugby World Cup a couple of years before. It was an incredibly exciting moment where Mandela came down from the stands wearing the Springbok shirt. He handed over the trophy to Francois Pina. I just remember watching that thinking, this is an incredibly exciting country to be in right now. I mean, that is, if there's, if there's a symbol of a sort of positive transition, look no further than that. Um, and what an amazing leader. I arrived, it was at the, right at the beginning of, the, um, of um, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which was being led by Desmond Tutu, which was really designed to be a sort of a, I guess, an exercise in catharsis um, for, um, for, for, for South Africa. And to get um, all those, I guess, sort of horrific crimes that effectively had been perpetrated on the vast proportion of, of the South African population for so many years um, out into the open. So people were talking about them. It wasn't in any way suppressed. It was right out there. Um, and uh, I just felt that, I don't know, I was at the, I was at the, I, I was in the country at a time when it was just turning into the rainbow nation. They had a new national anthem, Mkosi um, Sikileli Africa. Um, Nelson Mandela was president. I mean, it was just the most fabulous time. But then alongside that, so that was the exciting bit. Alongside that, of course, the first thing you see when you drive in from the airport is the squatter camps and the squalor and the poverty and the people walking along the highway. And, um, uh, and that was, again, totally new experience for me um, and one that will never, ever leave me. Um, but I have to say, I felt really positive about um, the opportunity that South Africa had. I felt that they were doing all the right things. There was a big call around black empowerment. Um, there were um, there lots of legislation around employment equity to, um, to make sure that, um, that the country was adequately represented in all the businesses that had bought so much wealth for so, much, uh, for so long. And there was a real, the, the thing that I really liked about it was that there was a, I guess there was an aspiration to build um, a black middle class. That's really what South Africa was all about, um, because they recognised that by building an aspirational middle class um, from that group that had been, you know, sort of historically so disadvantaged, was the thing that was going to stabilise the country and see it through, you know, into the next generation. There were, you know, I mean, just to give you an, ex an example, you know, there were um, there were sort of black middle class um, soap operas on the TV. Uh, you know, th th that was just unheard of, even five years before. Um, and, and I just thought that was wonderful. And I totally, totally found myself buying into the political purpose um, of the ANC at that time. I really did. And I, I guess I left South Africa with, um, after we were there for about 18 months, um, my wife came with me, which was brilliant. We were, she wasn't my wife at that time, but I'm thrilled she came with me. Um, uh, I definitely left South Africa with this rather sort of over overdeveloped sense of social justice. You know, I had this 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 um, this view about sort of income equality. It really stuck with me, 
Um, alongside the things that, that I learned on my MBA, in particular around marketing and the friends that I left with as well. But I think if I left with one thing, it was this really rather overdeveloped sense of social, of social justice. And I think that that rather dictated the choices I made around my career, certainly, uh, and my life after that. So where did it take you career-wise? Because I've noted that you went to B&Q, M&S, and that wasn't just to buy things, you were actually working there. I did some consulting for a couple of years. Um, so working for, a, working for a business called Javelin Group that was specialized in helping retailers develop, actually in those days, ridiculously, it was catalog businesses. Um, uh, and, and, uh, and I didn't realize that I'd actually landed in probably the best business I could have done because at that time, uh, the dot-com boom just completely took off. And what was spawned um, from um, you know the minds of entrepreneurs around the world was this idea was this idea that you could use this that you could use the internet to develop direct relationships with customers, and retailers were very very keen to explore that in a very quick way, and so I worked um, with B and Q, I worked with M and S, um, uh, I worked with all sorts of businesses actually um, to help them think about how. Um, to take advantage of that particular growth spike, because running a direct-to-consumer business is very, very different from an operational perspective, from an understanding your customer's perspective, from a technology perspective. It's fundamentally different to running a retailer, or it certainly was in those days. Those skills just didn't exist in retailers. And, um, and ironically, they existed in catalog businesses, which, of course, have been around for hundreds of years, well, 100 years at least. Um, so I found myself in that sort of moment where I was able to really be at the beginning of that whole digital revolution, certainly from a retail perspective. And I rather enjoyed that. And I joined the John Lewis partnership from there, who were a client of mine, um, who, uh, who offered me a job um, doing a strategy role, but with the promise of um, properly moving client side and, um, uh, and having what I guess I used to call a proper job, which was, you know, some line management responsibility, maybe some P&L responsibility, but I needed to sort of cut my teeth from a strategy perspective first. And that's exactly what I did. And you, you took on very much the spirit of John Lewis, didn't you? The partnership methodology. What did it teach you? I did. I mean, I, the funny thing is, you know, you say I took it on. I, I felt like I felt very at home there almost from day one. Mm. I felt like its values were very much pointing in my direction. Um, you know, they had this, it was, it's, I mean, really the partnership is an experiment in industrial democracy um, where people sit at the heart and their fundamental belief actually is that if you think about your people in, in the partnerships case, it's partners um, uh, and you do a brilliant job for them and you invest in them and you grow them and you love them and you nurture them, um, they will, they will, they will take that and provide a better experience for your customers. And if, you're, if the customer experience is better, that will translate into higher sales and higher profits. And that profit, those profits are then reinvested back into the people. And so what they had is this sort of virtuous circle, um, which gave them real momentum. And their fundamental belief that was that that was a better way of doing business, actually. Mm. Um, and this idea of sort of collective reward for collective effort too. So there was a partnership bonus that was paid. Everyone got the same percentage of pay. And so it always ended up to, always worked out at about, gosh, I mean, in those days, it was about 15 or 16%. So really significant, um, you know, several weeks pay, actually, um, paid at the same time to everyone in the business. And it just, I don't know, that whole, that whole ethos really, stuck with me I just felt that it was I didn't really have to try too hard to be anything that I wasn't actually I think that's really what I learned um, 
and so that was great so there was a sort of a real values sort of set and i the the they're, they're very good at um taking a very long-term view because they're not subject to the vagaries of the stock market or private equity investors who may want to you know get their money out or you know sell the business or um uh, or even be i don't know party to some sort of takeover because that risk wasn't there the business was able to take a much longer term view on the investments that it made and ultimately those investments were made for the benefit of customers and the benefit of um, partners the people who worked there and actually i felt that it gave them um at that time a competitive edge you know in a in a world which was operating in the opposite way i quite like the fact that the partnership was zigging while everyone else zagged um that um that that made a lot of sense to me and then at the same time um uh i, I realized it was a part it was a business that was able to take a risk on people you know if they spotted talent or um or in in my case actually it was just sort of ambition and you know a a, a, a desire to sort of work hard and get ahead um they were able to take risks which left you with a counterintuitive set of career moves that I would never ever have had anywhere else and actually it's one of the things that I sort of I I I I think about a lot at Fortnum's but giving people an opportunity to sort of move you know diagonally through their careers rather than vertically up through a particular function it rounds people out it broadens their experience it tests people and stretches people without breaking them and um and and my view is they're the best careers to have. Uh, and I, I really benefited from that. I mean, I was put in, Mark Price, who was running Waitrose at the time, um, uh, asked me to become the finance director of Waitrose. It was a job for which I was wholly inequipped. Um, but he just saw something in me and he just said, look, I won't let you fail. And um, and my goodness, I worked hard. I mean, that was, you know, I properly committed myself uh, to, that, to that job. And I'll never forget it. He sort of said, you know, back to this point about being uh, being able to be myself in the partnership. He said the best advice Mark ever gave me was um, was be yourself because everyone else is taken, and I really liked that. I really liked that as a just as a you know if if you if you're looking for the way to behave in any job and at any level and in any industry, um, just be yourself. Just be yourself and find find the role and find the business that um, that allows you to be yourself. Because because everything else is a battle, actually. Mm. And so one of the things that you also did while you're at Waitrose was that you helped to grow the finances of the business substantially and, and create what we might call the basics brand. We had an amazing time at Waitrose. I have to say, I was there for six years working alongside Mark. And um, uh, you know, when I joined, the business was turning over about four billion. When I left, it was turning over over six. Um, and that's no mean feat in the world's most competitive um it, that's you know grocery retailing in the uk is probably the most competitive retail market on the planet uh, and so increasing the size of a business like that that's already four billion by 50 percent was quite some feat you know i started off with or we started off um with a single format you know we had one type of supermarket it was about twenty thousand square foot it was either sort of in town or on the edge of market towns around the south of britain um, and we built a food and home format. Uh, uh, we built a convenience format. We built a, um, an international wholesale business. We launched online. Um, we launched the essentials range, as you say, which really opened, for, uh, opened Waitrose up to, a, um, uh, to a, a customer base who I think for years had thought they couldn't afford to um, shop there. This was right at the time of the financial crisis, actually, in 2009, 2010. Um, 
And, um, and we really doubled down at the same time, not just on the sort of value story, um, but on the things that made Waitrose special, you know, really thinking about those things that made Waitrose distinctive. So the quality of the product, the sourcing of our products, making sure that we, you know, we totally understood our supply chain, we knew exactly where our beef came from, we knew where our milk came from, we knew the farmers, um, we knew the people who worked on those farms. And that, I think, was an incredibly important part of the Waitrose growth story over them uh, over those subsequent years and it was a very exciting place to be I can't for um, a moment take um, uh, any individual credit for that we were a team um, but it was a brilliant team and actually that team and that sense of team and the leadership that Mark providers provided us was um, still remains an inspiration to me to this day actually and as I think about um, the principles of happiness uh, at JLP and the way I build my team at Fortnum's. Um, I think about that a lot. Well, let's move on to uh, your next beautiful piece of music. This is the Blues Brothers. She caught the catty. Wow. So the Blues Brothers is something of a sort of an enduring soundtrack to my life. I, you can't you can't be in my car without the Blues Brothers being on. It's um, it's it, it's music that sort of follows me around everywhere. Um, it is the most brilliant film. This is this happens to be my favourite film of all time. Um, uh, it is a fantastic film, I and mean, the cast is mm. astonishing. I was thinking about it this morning, actually, on the way into work, and I was thinking, you know, there was John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd, Cab Calloway, Aretha Franklin, James Brown, John Lee Hooker, Ray Charles, Frank Oz, Carrie Fisher. I I think even Twiggy makes an appearance at some point. I mean, it is the most extraordinary film. Um, the music is brilliant. She Caught the Katie is actually runs over the opening credits as they're leaving the jail that um, uh, that um, Jake Elwood has been in for years, Joliet. And um, uh, and it's a wonderful film and a, a wonderful song. And actually, it's um, it's no accident that my youngest daughter is um, is called Katie as a result. <laughs> That's why you named it that way. Exactly. So you come to Portland Masons and, and how did you how did you make the decision to, to join such a beautiful, elegant organization? So I left the John Lewis Partnership um, in 2018 and um, worked for a couple of years at an online luxury um, fashion business called Matches Fashion, which was sort of growing like a weed. It was doubling in size every 18 months. Um, uh, it, was, it, it was sort of founder-led, um, although he just sold it, actually. Um, and what I took from there and really got immersed in was not only sort of the luxury side of life um, from a consumer perspective, but but really digital, um, understanding customers, understanding data, understanding customers in particular, actually. So the power that small, you know, the tiny, infinitesimally small um, uh, uh, customer touches, and the, the, you know, the, the, the difference that can make for people. Um, and uh, and how to sort of deal with customers as much as anything else. I mean, the uh, you know when I arrived at Fortnum's, actually, I got I, I you know I get people write to me all the time with letters of complaint, and I take them all so seriously. It's something that I learned from um, uh, from matches. If someone emails me at Fortnum's, I'll, I'll email them back. If they write me a letter, I'll write to them back. If they write me a handwritten letter, I'll write a handwritten letter back. And actually, I've now taken that into. I've asked for um, the uh, the details of our top thousand customers our most valuable customers uh, and that might be not just financial value that might be people we want to remain friends with you know influential people um, and I've I write to them 25 a week I write them a little card and all I say to them is um, 
uh, we just love having you as a fan of Fortnum's and long may it continue. And just thank you for everything that you do. And I learned all of that at matches. All of those things make an incredibly big difference and they all add up to making an incredibly big difference. Um, and then the other thing I learned at matches was that it was super fast. It was, it was everything was going at breakneck speed. And, um, and what that meant was that if you didn't fix things properly at their roots, as soon as you became evident, as soon as they became evident, you, you very quickly become unsustainably inefficient. And it's one of the things that, again, just over the last few years, I've really learned that this bias towards wanting to fix problem at the problems at their roots, that was drilled into me at matches, actually. And it's definitely something that I brought to, um, uh, to Fortnum's when I joined. In fact, when I joined Fortnum's, um, we'd had a you know, pretty rough Christmas, actually. COVID had, had completely changed the profile of the way things were working. And it sort of exposed a number of things in Fortnum's that probably needed to work better. Um, and um, so the first thing I did is I asked for a list of the top 10 things that customers were complaining about. And I said, for the next six months, we're only going to focus on those 10 things and fix them and fix them at their roots. So no sticking plasters, no tying things together with string. This needs to be, we go right back to the root cause and fix them. And I'm really pleased we did. The, the reality is it took us nine months rather than six months. And we didn't quite get to the bottom of the list, but it did set us up for a much, much better Christmas the following year. And I'm really glad that we did that actually. Um, so that's what I took from matches. But to answer your question, when I left the partnership, um, someone said to me, what's the job you'd most like to do? And I said, well, the reality is I'd love to run Fortnum and Mason. You know, I look at this business from afar. It's family owned. Um, uh, it's got values, which I think are right up my street. Um, I know that all the family wants it to be as beautiful, sustainable and profitable. Um, I know they want to take a long term view and I wanted to get back into food rather than fashion. Um, and um, and that opportunity came. I was given a call um, uh, um, at some point over the summer of 2020 and um, uh, asking if I wanted to meet the family. Um, uh, the previous incumbent was on his way and um, to go and do something else. And I was given the opportunity to go and meet them. And um, uh, I, I just managed to convince them somehow that um, I was the right person for the job. And I have to say, I am, um, uh, I, I thank my lucky stars to this day that I've been given, that I've been given this opportunity. It's the most extraordinary business. It's been around for 300 years. Uh, there's a sense of sort of stewardship that I feel with this business. It's not just about me. It's about leaving it in a better shape than I found it. Um, uh, and I inherited a business that was in rude health, I have to say. Um, but it inevitably needs to evolve with the changing times whilst respecting the traditions that it stands for. Um, and um, and we're, having a, we're having a good crack at that, actually, at the moment. My first day, I must tell you about my first day. I walked in on my first day. It was the beginning of 2021. We'd just gone into that really, really long lockdown. It was right at the beginning of January. And, um, and I... Uh, I walked in and the, the, the first person I met said, um, we've got a bit of a problem. 60% of our team are either ill or self-isolating uh, with COVID. Um, we're going to have to shut the shop. We remained open because we were a food retailer, just the ground and lower ground floor. And, um, and, I, said, um, and I said, well, how, uh, uh, so we, and this chap was saying, if we shut for two weeks, maybe people will get better and then we'll come back in two weeks time and we'll open up again. And um, and I said, well, when do we need to make this decision? He said, you need to make it in the next hour. And I, I hadn't even got to my office at this point. I hadn't even found the coffee machine. I you know, didn't know anyone. And, um, 
I went upstairs and thought about what I was going to do. And in fact, I called Mark, who was my boss at Waitrose. And I said, Mark, I need some advice. And he said to me, well, I thought you might call for some advice, but I didn't think it would be before nine o'clock on the first morning. And, um, uh, and I said, what do you think I should do? And he said, I don't think it matters what you do. Just make a decision and make it in 10 minutes. Um, and, and actually, I decided to keep the shop open. And I'm really pleased that I did. Um, and we put a skeleton staff on, uh, on, um, uh, on rotation for those first few weeks. And we sort of muddled our way through. And I'm really glad that we did, actually. There was nothing about the numbers in two weeks that were going to be any better than they were at that point. So actually, if we were going to shut, we were going to be shut for four months. So I'm really glad that we kept it open. But just to give you a bit of an insight into my first day, it was fascinating. <laughs> Dangerous stuff, eh? Now, you, you have as a business, you're famous for all these wonderful royal warrants. I'd love to know what that, the background to all of that. And you're also famous for some interesting firsts in Fort Northern Masons. We are. So, um, so we invented the Scotch egg. <laughs> um, uh, we, in, interestingly, Fortnum's was founded on a recycling idea, actually. Um, William Fortnum was a footman to Queen Anne. Um, and he asked for permission from the royal household when it was based at St. James's Palace in those days to uh, take the melted down candles, um, melt them down again, reconstitute them into candles and sell them pretty much on this site on Piccadilly. And that was in 1707. And his landlord was a man called Hugh Mason. So that's where it started. We invented the Scotch egg. We were the first people in the UK to stock baked beans. Um, Mr. Hines came into Fortnum's. I don't know the date. Um, with a suitcase full of tins of baked beans and we mm. took we bought the whole lot and sold them on the first day uh, mm. sold the whole lot on the first day um and uh, we're in stock of baked beans for years after that we do have royal warrants and we've held them for a long time um and we're enormously proud of them actually the royal warrants that we hold at the moment and of course this is all in very much in transition but her majesty the queen's warrant and um uh his royal highness the prince of wales um, as was um and they're, they're really interesting, actually, because um, you know, people might think that those warrants are a sign of, you know, patronage, um, the fact that uh, the royal household um, uh, um, use Fortnum's for you know, various things, whether it's hampers or Christmas puddings at Christmas or whatever it might be. Um, but the really interesting thing about the warrants that I never really appreciated was that actually they are um, really a kite mark for sustainability. So the um, the, uh, the, pr the, the proof points that you have to go through in order to achieve or gain a royal warrant or be awarded a warrant, granted a warrant, I think the language is, um, um, are incredibly high. The bar they set is very high. So you have to have very clear plans around um, diversity and inclusion. You have to have very clear plans around sustainability, around net zero, um, uh, around energy usage, um, uh, the full sort of suite of what you might call sort of you know the, the sort of the ESG agenda um, and um, and it makes me even more proud to hold them actually um, it really does and I, I I would I would like more people to really understand what they stand for and the, and the process that businesses not just us but lots and lots of businesses go through to be granted those royal warrants is um, is really quite an impressive thing actually it's a kite mark for quality when it comes to sustainability diversity and sort of you know environmental and and um uh, and societal good and i think that that's a brilliant thing and that is that is also a phenomenal story as you say people don't realize but that's very very powerful how do you, how have you been able to make fortnum and masons more inclusive as a entity 
Yeah, it's a good question. And I think there are a number of ways of answering that. I mean, my, my own view, I mean, I talked about it briefly earlier, but my own view of modern luxury generally, old luxury, actually. So um, I'm thinking luxury sort of in the past. Um, I think it's had this sort of mystique of formidableness, I, which really is sort of gross exclusivity by another name. And I really struggle with that. It's just not in my nature and it's not what I want Fortnum's to become. And we've been thinking a lot about that actually as a team at Fortnum's. And, um, and I want Fortnum's to be much more modern, much more open, much more welcoming, much more inclusive. And I don't just mean that from a um, necessarily from a ethnicity perspective or a sexual orientation perspective, although I mean all of those things, but actually just starting with a different, different type of customer who wants things to be more informal, less stuffy. They still have very, very high standards. They want the product to be amazing. They want the service to be fabulous. Um, but at the same time, they want more warmth and they want to be surrounded by um, customers and people that represent Britain of today. And, um, and I find that very easy to get excited about, I have to say. Um, but if I was to talk about inclusivity from a, um, a workforce perspective, um, I guess my thinking, I always take it back to um, George Floyd, actually, and that moment. I was at Matches at the time. I know Fortnum's took it incredibly seriously, and I know Matches did too. Um, and we all sort of reacted in a similar way. You know, we sort of blacked out our social media. We started to talk to our teams much more. Um, uh, and my predecessor, I know, did exactly that at Fortnum's. And I think that was a brilliant thing. But it made me start to think about the difference between um, a sort of a short-term emotional reaction and, dare I say it, being, being very focused on being seen to do the right thing and something which is much more about in, enduring, enduring change. And, uh, and if I go back to sort of fixing things at their roots, you know, my sort of, my, my natural inclination is to, is, is to not dwell on the short-term emotional reaction, which I don't necessarily think is particularly enduring, and think about the things that are going to drive change, which are going to last forever. And, um, and I think what we've managed to do over the last few years, and I think we would say we are sort of, um, you know, we're not at the beginning of this journey, but we're nowhere near the end, um, has moved us from a place, I think what we've done is moved ourselves from a place where we've sort of had good intentions and strong values culturally, to something which is a bit more sort of action oriented. And, and as I said, I think that we can always do more um, uh, in this space. Um, so for example, you know, we've launched surveys to be much better understand the diversity of our population. Um, uh, and um, uh, they're anonymous surveys, so you don't have to answer them if you don't want to, but really understanding, you know, the nationalities that we represent, you have 65 nationalities working at Fortnum's, um, but, um, but people's willingness to sort of divulge um, sexual orientation um, alongside all the sort of, you know, the, um, you know, gender and age things, which I think have become um, really sort of wallpaper up until now. But I think that's been a really useful place to start. We've, we launched something called the Belonging Network, which is where people come together from across the business to discuss the issues and take responsibility for the action themselves. So we empower that group um, to tackle not just questions of race, but of age, of gender, of you know, sexuality, of ability, religion, all sorts of things. And actually there's a whole load of things that have come from that network. So we funded a team to take part in Pride this year. That's the first time we've ever done that. Um, we've uh, kicked off an external speaker program the first um was uh, uh at the end of last month we um, had a fantastic speaker on neurodiversity we've 
been um, they recommended that we signed up to the um, business in the community race at work charter. I mean, all of those things which are fantastic, and I think they're all great. But I guess my question is, how can they be, you know, sort of more impactful and more enduring? This is the sort of question I really grapple with. Um, and for me, when I think about it, um, I guess I guess I sort of come back to um, starting with a set of fundamental beliefs. And by the way, I think about I think the same way about sustainability. I think about our approach to um, protecting the environment, to protecting the source of our food, for example. Um, I have a I have a very similar view, and and that is that unless you are really clear about the things that you fundamentally believe about these issues, they will always just be a veneer on top of what you should be doing. And so. Um, so with food, we've just launched a restaurant on our ground floor called Field, an amazing place, um, which is really all about food provenance and um, sourcing better and um, quality and getting to know our suppliers and all the rest of it. And um, but the question I've been asking myself is, yes, but why? And I've been asking our teams, but why are we doing this? Let's really understand why we're doing this. Why have we launched Field in a way that gets us closer to our suppliers? And and actually what you realize is the answer is not just because it's the right thing to do for the planet and because our customers are asking us to do it and because we want to be able to talk about it. But if you talk to our chefs, what they will say is that if you source with real care and you look after the soil that the food is grown in or the seabed or the communities in which that food is produced or caught or, um, uh, or, or, or grown, the chefs will tell you that it actually tastes better. And I'm thinking, well, that's a brilliant reason to do it, much better than the the sort of, you know, maybe the maybe the slightly more worthy, well, you know, we should be doing this, we have a moral imperative. The food tastes better. What a brilliant, what a brilliant reason to do it. Um, and I think the same about diversity. And I think that what we're beginning to circle, uh, circle around now at Fortnum's is this fundamental belief that action on diversity and fairness makes for happier, more effective teams. And, and actually, that is a brilliant reason to do it. So for all the, you know, for sort of the worthy moral imperative and indeed, of course, the legislative requirement to do these things these days, fundamentally, we're a business that sees value in sustainability and value in diversity. And I think that's a much more enduring way of getting to the answer. Well, Tom, this has been absolutely amazing to talk with you. Thank you for that pleasure of continuing to drive diversity and to drive inclusion, drive sustainability through the business. It's been wonderful to sit and chat with you at this hour, but we could have gone on all day. Thank you for joining me today, opening up your amazing, fascinating life and your remarkable relationships and your aspirations. It's been a real pleasure and it will stay with all of us who listen to this for a very long time. So if you have enjoyed it, please join us next time on BBI's You're On Mute, where we hear from another icon, business leader, famous personality, if you like this podcast, subscribe to BBI You're On Mute, which is available on Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon, and wherever you take or consume your podcast. And if you're a leader and feel you want to tell your story, please contact, contact us at info at blackbusinessinstitute.com. Until the next time, goodbye.